Views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAF Aviation. Today is episode eight. We are privileged to have Major Micah Slap Morris with us today. He is currently the Air Officer Commanding of Cadet Squadron 17 at the United States Air Force Academy. Major Morris entered the Air Force in 2010 after graduating from the University of Alabama Reserve Officer Training Corps. He has served in manned and unmanned combat flying squadrons as a weapons system officer in the F-15E and as an evaluator pilot in the MQ-9. He's a graduate of the United States Air Force Weapons School. Prior to his current position, Major Morris served as director of staff of the 17th Attack Squadron at Creech Air Force Base, Nevada, where he served as the advisor to the commander to ensure smooth day-to-day operations for a 271-member total force integrated squadron. Additionally, he was the chief instructor for the squadron and was responsible for the development of cutting-edge tactics, techniques, and procedures for RPA operations, and the maintenance of 10 diverse syllabi across multiple major weapons systems. He is a combat veteran with more than 850 combat flying hours. Sir, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yes, I guess we'll just kind of jump straight into uh, your military career and your experience. So um, first up, one of the things that stuck out to me um, in your bio is obviously you you were originally a weapons systems officer in the F-15E, and then you transitioned over to being a RPA pilot. So talk me through um, that decision process or why did you transition? Yeah, I get asked that quite often, uh, surpri- not surprisingly, I guess. Uh, they ask, why would you go from a F-15 to uh, an MQ-9? And for me, it was multiple reasons. So first was uh, when I was deployed in 2014, we had a couple operations with MQ-1s and we couldn't have done the mission without them. Uh, So for example, we were following multiple uh, insurgents through a valley at nighttime and the sniper pod wasn't able to accurately track them. So we had to keep getting uh, talk-ons from the MQ-1. That uh, ultimately led to an engagement and whatnot. Um, And when I got back, I was like, wow, whatever they're able to see must be pretty impressive. So that kind of piqued my curiosity. About that time, the UPT board came out for active duty and it had a container to check uh, for URT, uh, so undergrad RPA training. And I went back and forth. I always wanted to be a pilot. And I decided that I would go ahead and check that because I uh, found what they did on that deployment is pretty interesting. So Uh, And I knew that I didn't want to stay as a WIZO for 20 years. So uh, I felt like being able to bring what I learned in the strike yield community over to the RPA community would be beneficial for the Air Force. Um, The other part of that is that, you know, there's a lot of potential for the RPA advancement in the future. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but that potential for the advancement had me pretty excited to volunteer for that position. And then lastly, I got married. So... uh, I don't know if you know, but manned aircraft, you're on the road a lot. So just uh, I wasn't sure that if I that I wanted to bring my wife along for 14 more years of active duty service with the man lifestyle where you're on the road 50 percent of the year, because uh, when I look back at my time at Lake and Heath in the Strike Eagle, I was on the road about 50 percent of the time, which it was a fun time. So I did TDYs to Norway and Israel, flew in exercises with international exercises Uh, Lots of good times, but at the end of the day, I was like, I don't know if I could sustain this for a 20-year career. So that was another reason. So uh, being able to come home at night, uh, every night is pretty awesome in the RPA community, and you still have impacts on national security. So that was pretty cool. So take me through that. Um, You mentioned, like, having a family Mm -hmm. and um, not... 
not wanting to be away from home a lot. So what does that day-to-day look like as an RPA operator? Yeah, so short answer, uh, you're gonna hear this a lot today probably, it depends. So it really depends on what squadron you go to and what that operations look like. But for the most part, basically what's gonna happen is uh, as soon as you become combat mission ready, you're gonna get on what we call flying the line or shift work. Uh, So you might hear those two terms. Um, So when I got in there, it was five days on, three days off, so a rotating cycle um, 24-7. There was three shifts, so you had day shift, mid shift, or sorry, day shift, swing shift, and mid shift. Day shift was eight to four, swing shift was four to midnight, and mids was midnight to 8 a.m. And that's generally consistent across most MQ-9 squadrons. The hours could vary a little bit depending on what squadron you're in. so uh, do, when you're on shift, so basically uh, as a lieutenant, you're probably going to be flying about five, six hours, uh, depending on manning and whatnot. And then as you become late, uh, grow throughout your career, you'll and pick up jobs such as like a flight commander or something like that. Maybe you'll start flying about three or four hours per shift. So it's not like you're flying in there eight hours every day uh, for your five, five day shift uh, and whatnot. So um but recently it's changed so they're trying to move more in line with the combat manned uh manned combat to dwell ratio so what that looks like it's different for each ops group so uh, for my ops group what we transition to is instead of days swings mids it's now days swings mids dwell and then you repeat that cycle so during that dwell cycle you're focused on uh training uh, currencies, upgrades, and uh, Air Force requirements, you know, um, CBTs and whatnot, things like that. Uh, so that's kind of the construct they're going through. So essentially you end up being on the day shift for 10 weeks, half of it's dwell, so you're not really flying the line, and then the other five weeks of it is you're flying the line. Um, and like I said, there's some construct of that with every ops group, but that's what mine, mine transitioned to. And then it's... Um, it really just depends on the ops group that you go to, what it's specifically going to look like, but it's some f- form or fashion of that. And what's your personal, like, favorite shift to fly? Ooh. Personal favorite shift, if it's just me at home, uh, probably swing shift, so that 4 p.m. to midnight, because I'm not a morning person, so it's it's really easy to, to be awake during those hours for me, and there's a lot of action going on overseas during that time as well. Uh, mid-shift was probably the hardest because it's hard to stay up till 8 a.m., uh, but it wasn't that bad. Uh, but having a wife at home, swing shift wasn't the best because she worked Monday through Friday, normal uh, work hours, so I didn't get to see her as much during that time. So probably day shift was my favorite based on that. Gotcha. So um, coming from being an um, weapon system officer, um, what, like, skill sets did you take um, that RPA pilots no, don't normally have the experiences and bring that to the RPA community and share that knowledge and use those uh, tactics, if you will? Yeah. So I, I like to think I had a pretty successful MQ-9 career and really I owe that to my Strike Eagle days. So I learned a lot as from being a WIZO. Basically taught me discipline, airmanship, how to talk on the radios, uh, how to critically think and mission planning and integrating with other assets. So all those things, um, like there, I could go, keep going on for what the WIZO aspect brought to the RPA community and how that benefited me. 
Uh, but without that prior strike eagle experience, I don't think I would have had as successful of a career in the MQ-9. Mm. And what is, uh, if you're able to speak to it, what does the like weapons employment look like differ, or how does that differ from the F-15 to the MQ-9? So from in the Strike Eagle, the uh, the WIZO is going to designate the target and give clearance to the pilot to release, and the pilot's flying the aircraft to maneuvering the aircraft to release the weapon. Uh, versus MQ-9, I'm doing all that on my own and releasing the weapon. I do have a sensor operator on my right that's guiding it in. So it's a little bit different, a little bit same, uh, because we do have the sensor operator guiding in the weapon if it is laser guided. Yes, sir. And in just, I'm curious, is the sensor operator an officer job or is that enlisted? No, they're enlisted. Yep. Okay. Interesting. So, um, talking a little bit about the training pipeline, um, obviously you transitioned, um, from being a WISO to an RPA pilot, but how, what does the training pipeline look like for newly commissioned officers? Yeah. So basically you're going to start off down at Pueblo. Um, so you're probably PCS to Randolph or do a casual or something in between, uh, depending on the manning and whatnot. Uh, but the first training event is going to be Pueblo down at IFT. So initial flight training and you get about 40 hours in the DA 20. So essentially what that looks like is a PPL course without getting your actual PPL. Uh, it's very easy to go and get your PPL after it because you have all the requirements. Uh, you just have to take the FAA test and then take uh, a couple flights to get all the requirement items for the PPL. And then you can do that afterwards. I personally never did, um, but that's a personal choice. But a lot of people do do that. Uh, so you're flying uh, solos, cross countries, solo cross countries, stuff like that. Uh, and for me, that was like one of the best times in my Air Force career because pretty awesome because I, I was out here in the fall, beautiful weather, flying out solo with the Rockies in the background. It's pretty hard to beat. So really fun time, um, and, but it is a stressful environment. Um, it, a lot of people struggle. It's, it's completely different from, you know, if you had your PPL or had some prior civilian flying experience, it's a completely different environment in the military training. So that adjustment's hard for a lot of people. Um, after that, you go to Randolph and it's about a six month course. So the first four months or so is essentially the T6 phase of UPT, but it's all in the simulator. So uh, you're doing uh, instruments, um, navigation, all that kind of stuff in the T6 sim for basically what you would be doing for UBT. You're taking all the same tests and whatnot. You're obviously not doing the formation portion in the sim, uh, but everything else is the same as UPT. So it's kind of mirroring that. Um, and then the last two months at Randolph, uh, you're going to do a, a two month course, basically that it's introduction to RPA operation and they have an MQ-9 like simulator there that they kind of try and introduce you to what it's going to be like when you do get to the MQ-9. Uh, and, and as well as they, go over Air Force operations in a whole like joint environment type stuff. So that's kind of what that looks like. Uh, at some point during the training, I don't recall exactly when, you'll have a drop night and get your aircraft and base assignment. So most people are gonna end up going to the MQ-9. Occasionally a few people will go to, I think a couple people in class right now are going to RQ-4 still. Um, and then very, very rarely RQ-170 might drop, but that's few and far between. Uh, so for the most people, you're going to go MQ-9s, and then you're going to go to the B course or basic course. Um, and that's located at Syracuse, March, or Holloman. Holloman, I think, is the biggest of the three, and that's about six months long as well. 
So you learn to fly the MQ-9 there, and then you go through different mission sets that the MQ-9 does, such as close air support, um, combat search and rescue, and air interdiction, things like that. Uh, after you graduate that, you'll go on to your ops unit. And once you get to your ops unit, you'll go through mission qualification training. And depending on the squadron, manning, timing, all that stuff, generally speaking, it's going to be about a month once you actually get started. Uh, and like I said, that could depend on the squadron you end up going to. Uh, but once you go through that mission qualification training, and that's specifically focus, focused on what is your squadron's mission, because each squadron has a different mission. So you're focused on what your squadron's mission is and becoming proficient at that. As soon as you graduate MQT, you're combat mission ready, and you hit the line. Well, that's interesting. And so, so a lot of drone pilots right now are coming over from like conventional aircraft or manned aircraft. Do you notice any difference between the pilots who flew manned aircraft beforehand and the ones who were just come straight into drones? So that used to be the case. Uh, more recently, it's the 18X pipeline is filling most of the spots. You do occasionally have some second assignments coming over. Oftentimes you have prior CISOs, WISOs come over, things like that, ABMs, uh, cross-training and whatnot. But for the most part, we're growing our own community at this point. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, it was full of you know 11Fs and 11Ms and whatnot. So um, you know, the, I think we're doing good. Um, the, there's a lot to the experience that those communities bring in the airmanship and whatnot. But I think the, a lot of them were jaded to be there. Uh, not all of them, but some of them were definitely not happy about being there, being pulled from a fighter or whatever platform they came from. Um, so now you have people that are more excited to be there with a little bit less airmanship, but we're still getting the mission done. Yes, sir. So when it comes to um, combat operations, um, when the drones downrange, wherever it might be, who's stateside, who's downrange, and how does that operation look like, um, just from the like logistics side of things? Yeah, sounds good. Um, again, it depends. So and everything's changing. So. Uh, Basically, all the all, all the ops groups have different missions. So for that aspect, it's kind of hard to speak to. But for who's downrange and who is stateside, so downrange right now you have what's called a launch and recovery element. They're a whole squadron. There's two squadrons at Creech, and their whole job is to launch and land the planes. Um, so they will deploy, and for I think about a three month cycle at a time. Um, and then they'll, uh, they'll, while they're downrange, they'll just, all they do is take off the planes and land the planes. So they'll take it off, they'll fly it to about 5,000 feet above ground level. And then we, and stateside at Creech or wherever it may be, uh, we call that the mission control element. And they will fly the mission from that point to wherever they need to go. They'll execute the mission and then they'll fly it back, hand it off to the recovery element, and then they'll land the plane. Mm. Awesome. And so what I, I guess I kind of have a follow up question. So what's the logic behind handing off at, you said, 5000 AGL? Why not just have the drone operator in one location or the other? Are you saying like launch it from Las Vegas or, or, or more? Wherever? You can you can launch it from wherever it needs to. And then but why have a, like a send off and recovery forces and then the transfer of aircraft control to someone yeah. back stateside. So right now it's all because of line of sight. So uh, line of sight, the, the response of time is a lot faster than what it is over KU SATCOM. Um, so 
that's the main reason. So they're looking at ways in the future to be able to do it all from stateside and then send a small contingency downrange. So the RQ4 actually does that. They have auto takeoff and land. And so they have a small footprint downrange versus MQ9s have like a whole squadron downrange to launch and uh, land the planes. Uh, so yeah, that's the reason why. Mm. And so how does the MQ9 differ from the MQ1? MQ-9, different from the MQ-1. So it's better, (laughs) obviously. Uh, In all seriousness, it's it's bigger, it's faster, it's more reliable, it carries more weapons, it has a better camera, it, you know, it's just overall a more capable aircraft, carries more payloads and whatnot. Uh, Overall, just a way more capable aircraft, a lot longer loiter time, um, and just able to do a lot more for, for us. Okay, so just like completely leveled up in pretty much every way? Yep. Amazing. And so um, obviously, once again, get a reference to the uh, weapon system officer days. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about a target authentication um, Mm -hmm. um, in RPAs, how does that differ, if any, um, from manned aircraft and manned assets? Um, So again, it depends. so basically, it comes down to this. So different areas of responsibility have different rules of engagement for target PID, so positive identification of the target. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll basically just say that the fidelity of the MQ-9 is extremely incredible, and it's only getting better as technology advances, just to keep it simple. simple. Is that, simple. I, I mean, I don't know how far, but is, is it in comparison to our manned aircraft, is it comparable or is it? I, I guess what we're able to see. Yes. Much better. Much better. Much, much better. So um, when I guess when it kind of goes off that and when we talk about tar- target authentication, making sure you're hitting the right target. Yeah. Um, are the air rates different between manned and unmanned um, aircraft? We know what we're hitting. Yeah. So when I when I because I flew with the sniper pod before and I thought it was incredible and it is. Um, but when I sat down at the MQ-9 for the first time. I was just like, wow, this is good. Uh, it's incredible the capabilities that we have. And like I said, the technology continues to advance over the years. And so I'm excited to see what it looks like when I get back in a couple of years. Mm. That's, uh, yeah, no, that's crazy. So how do y'all, um, or sorry, what, what kind of assignments do you get relative to what the F-15 would get? Like how do your assignments of who you're targeting differ? That depends on your ops group and your mission. Um, so you can get ATO taskings, so air tasking order taskings, um, uh, depending on the, it, for like the conventional groups. Uh, some have work with different supported units and have different target decks and taskings come in different ways. Uh, so it's kind of hard to answer, but hopefully that helps a little bit. Yeah. And then um, talk a little bit about your background. Um, so obviously a graduate of the Air Force Weapons mm-hmm. School. So. What, to what extent does that, like, those skills that you gained at weapons school level up your game and your ability to execute the mission? Yeah, so obviously weapons school is a, it's a challenging environment, a very difficult course, but really it's a fun course at the end of the day. It may not seem like it while you're going through it because you're th- under a lot of stress and whatnot. Um, and it took me probably till about halfway through the course when it clicked for me. I was like, this isn't necessarily, it is a tactics course, don't get me wrong but it's really a leadership course disguised as a tactics course. So uh, what I mean by that is throughout the course, you become an expert in your own major weapon systems. 
then you start to integrate with other aircraft um, and you start execution executing a common mission by leading wingmen managing other resources available and being able to critically think under a high stress environment uh, and ultimately able to accomplish the mission at hand and i think that those things kind of closely aligned align with the afi 1-2 commander's responsibility of executing the mission uh, managing resources uh, <clears throat> sorry improving the unit and leading people so those are the four things in afi 1-2 and really all those skills are learned at weapons school and i think that's why you see a lot of commanders out there uh, with the patch on their left shoulder so yeah. and and um so we talked a little bit about the differences between the mq9 and the mq1 but uh fundamentally what the mission sets between the mq9 and the rq4 how do those differ yeah so rq4 um i honestly don't know a whole lot about it um we'd never i never worked with them in my career so i don't know a lot about it but i do obviously know a little bit about it so obviously they both do isr uh, but the MQ-9 plays many other roles that the RQ-4 can't, you know. So RQ-4 heavily relies on mission planning and pre-planned routes of what they're going to do for that day. And if they get it injected, the, they can obviously uh, adjust to that. But it's a lot harder than the MQ-9 because I'm manually flying the aircraft and putting it where I want to. Um so it's a lot easier for an MQ-9 to be retasked, and we're doing a lot more pilotage, if you will. I'm not trying to make fun of RQ-4s or anything, both valuable assets to the Air Force. Uh, but for the most part, theirs is pre-programmed versus ours. We're hand-flying it to wherever we need to go, and we're more dynamic. If the mission changes, we can accommodate that a lot easier. Uh, but like I said, both uh, platforms bring a lot to the fight, and they're both valuable assets to the Air Force. And so speaking of that, like hand flying, mm -hmm. how does that flying, that physical flying of the drone differ or feel from a conventional aircraft? Well, you don't have the seat of the pants feel. Um, I don't know if you've heard that term before, but so you don't feel anything that's going on. So it can be spatial disorienting at times. Uh, but so you have, you know, think of it like uh, in, a, in the Strike Eagle, you had altitude hold. Um, you didn't really have airspeed hold, but uh, altitude hold. So you basically have the same thing. We do have airspeed and altitude hold. So what that'll do is it'll keep the aircraft at the airspeed and the altitude, and then you fly it wherever you need to go. Um, when you're descending and climbing, you can punch in just like an autopilot. Hey, go down to 10,000 feet. Uh, you can do that in MQ-9, or you can hand fly it down. Uh, you can do it either way. So it is, uh, I think it's, there's a good healthy mix of automated in the MQ-9 and um pilotage in the MQ-9 as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess transitioning a little bit away from your military career and more mm -hmm. so kind of the future of drones in the MQ-9. Um, obviously the MQ-9 right now is used primarily for air to ground missions and ISR. Um, do you see a, a near future in the Air Force where drones are becoming more heavily relied upon in air to air combat? You know, I would love to see it. Um, so I don't know if you know, but at, uh, I think it was in a weapon school integration vol, uh, MQ-9 shot down an F-22 with an AIM-9. Uh, so they're making improvements in that area. Uh, I don't know if we're going to see like uh, RPA fighters or whatnot in my career, but I would probably be willing to bet that over the next 20 years in y'all's career, that's a potential. 
Uh, but again, I don't know anything along those lines. And even if I did, I couldn't tell you. On yes. That. So yeah, I totally understand. Yeah. So, um, talking a little bit about air to ground missions, um, what, so obviously you're talking about how drones are fantastic. The image quality pretty, very, very good. Um, what, where does the drones fall short that necessitates having, still having that, those um, manned assets yeah. execute the missions? I don't see in my lifetime that we're going to get rid of manned assets. Um, we both bring things to the fight. Uh, in a non-contested environment, the MQ-9 is extremely capable. Um, you know, we can do the job most of the time. You know, if you need 2,000 pounders dropped on the building, MQ-9 is not your, not your uh, weapon system of choice. You need to call somebody else. But uh, other than that, we can pretty much do the job. Um, but when it comes to a contested environment, uh, our capabilities can be limited depending on the threat, right? So obviously KU, the satellite, is a limitation. So if someone knocks out our satellite, then we're kind of you know out of luck at that point. Um, so I think that over the years, the Air Force is going to come up with ways to mitigate that. Um, I don't know if that's going to be in the MQ-9 or something else, but I think there's going to be ways that they can mitigate that in the future that can make us more viable option in a contested environment, if that makes sense. Yeah. But only time will tell with that. And sorry, this is doubling back just a little bit, but how does that, how does your, um, when, when you went through weapons school, right, mm -hmm. you learn how to kind of integrate with the total force. How does that kind of manifest itself while you're flying missions? So for me, my ops group did not do a whole lot of integration, so it did not necessarily manifest itself. It kind of helped with just mission planning for missions that we were doing, uh, how to do that, and then work with the resources that we had available to us. Um, but for the conventional side, it's going to be like, you know, if we're planning a package for a fight, like the weapons officers are going to be the ones doing that. So they have, they're prepared to do that if the, if they're called upon. Yes, sir. Um, talking a little bit about more of the personnel aspect of the drone community. So um, drone pilots comparative to say other pilots have a kind of a higher mental health um, challenges and issues related to that. So what do you think can be implemented to, you know, stop those possible challenges and issues on the front side? Yeah. A lot of cadets ask me this question. Uh, they're concerned about mental health and rightfully so. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It, it's war. Um, we do take lives. It happens. Um, but for me, I haven't seen it as a big issue. I know that there's a big stigma with RPAs and mental health. I haven't seen that personally. Granted, I've only been in one ops group and other ops groups like may be taking more strikes that I'm not aware of that is affecting their mental health. Um, but from what I've experienced, like I said, the fidelity is very good with the camera. I know what I'm striking and I'm able to clear the area with the other aircraft uh, in the stack to make sure that we're taking out the intended target and the intended target only. And we put a lot and a lot of emphasis on making sure that there's no additional collateral. Uh, so that helps me sleep at night. Um, I know I'm just one person too, so I realize that it may affect someone completely differently. Um, but what I will say is that I have seen in our community the chaplains, PPC, they get read right into the programs and they're walking the halls and 
if someone takes a strike, they'll, they'll be there to say, hey, do you need to talk to somebody? And oftentimes the commanders say that if it's your first strike, you have to go talk to somebody, whether you want to or not. Um, so I think we have the resources in place. And like I said, I haven't seen it be that big of an issue. I know like a lot of people think that RPA life is wake up, drive to, to work, kill a bunch of people, come home. And reality, that's not the case. So there's a lot of ISR uh, that goes into it and a lot of target study and development. And generally speaking, we are extremely cautious with taking a shot because of the implications that it has on media and whatnot. Uh, if you do the same thing with a manned asset, you're not going to get the same scrutiny as you would an RPA, right? So we take a lot of pride in making sure that there's no collateral when we do take a strike. And I'm not going to lie, mistakes happen. We're not perfect. We're humans. Um, like you can't pr prevent every situation. Um, and I do think we have the resources in place if that does happen for someone to talk to. And how is that work-life balance of, you know, being at home, but also still being in the warfighting domain? I think that's different for everyone. Like for me, I, I enjoyed it. Like Creech was about 35 minute drive home every day. So that gave me time to decompress. I realized not every base is that far of a drive, but that was kind of, I switched it on, switched it off on the drive. Um, and then for me, like it's just business. It comes down to, I'm doing the job that I'm ordered to do from higher ups. And uh, I've never been put in a situation where I've questioned what I've been told to do. So I sleep fine at night and it doesn't bother me, but I realize I'm just one person and other people handle things differently. Yeah, so what you said with the, uh, a lot of people think I just go to work, drive to work, you know, <laughs> drop bombs and then I come home to my kids or yeah. family. Um, I can definitely attest to the fact that that is a lot of times how people view, view the job. And obviously I know every day you're not dropping bombs, but one of the, um, in behavioral sciences last year, one of the things we were talking about as a potential solution somebody was doing research on was to stagger training side of things and actual downrange missions. Mm. So it's almost like it's almost like a deployment where you have your like, like oh, it's this is the three month or six yep. month like I'm game on real world versus just, oh, I'm training. Um, yep. What's your view on that? I, I think that's healthy and that's what we need to get to, but it's going to come down to manning. Uh, so that's kind of what I was talking at, uh, about with the dwell program. So in-state goal, like it would be beautiful if we had like three months on, three months off, like some squadrons do, or even better, like nine months off or nine months off, three months on, something like that. Because uh, in the fighter community, it was six months on, 18 months off, basically. Uh, so seeing that would be beautiful. I don't think that's realistic. Uh, I think three and three could happen eventually if Manning got healthy enough. Uh, but that I think that would do a lot for the mental aspect is like, hey, during these three months, we're treating it as no leave, no stuff like that. And we're deployed, if you will. Um, I think that would do a lot for the community and the mental health aspect. And do you see like Air Force Personnel Command trying to trying to or sorry, that's no, uh, do you see Air Force Command trying to step up that recruiting and get that Manning higher? I. I'm not smart enough on that to answer. Mm. Um, I would love to see it, though. Mm -hmm. um, talking a little bit about Manning, um, obviously pilots, Air Force pilot shortage. Mm -hmm. um, does the RPA community have a similar problem, or is it pretty stable? I think it's gotten better over the years. I don't know the numbers, honestly. Um, but I know that when I first hit the line, I was flying six to eight hours a night uh, as a flight commander. And I know now flight commanders are flying like 
probably four-ish hours a shift, uh, giving them time to do their extra work outside of uh, flying. So I think it is getting better, and just based on the the bonuses, like kind of decreasing this year for us, that I'm kind of leaning towards it is getting better. I haven't done the research, honestly, to what the numbers actually look like. Probably should, though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so obviously a lot of uh, conventional pilots, they go and fly for the airlines after Mm -hmm. they retire. Is that something that you've seen in the RPA community, or do they, or do people generally go do something different? So I've seen a lot of it only because of a lot of the earlier RPA folks were prior manned pilots, so they have the all the ratings and whatnot. So we don't get any ratings coming through URT. That's the one. I I think that's unfortunate. I think we should at least get a PPL. My own personal opinion, not an Air Force opinion, um, but yeah. So. We're not getting those ratings, so we would have to pursue getting your commercial license and then getting enough hours to get ATP and then go in airlines. We would have to do that on our own dime or use the the GI Bill or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, no, I don't see a lot of that. But there are a lot of job opportunities outside of the Air Force for MQ-9 pilots. Um, Don't want to go into specifics on those. Uh, And like I said, everything's dynamic with the RPA enterprise, so things are constantly changing. I would be surprised if some of the or most of those jobs don't get cut out in the next few years. So, okay, so um, transitioning a little bit away from the future of the Air Air Force with the MQ-9 and drones, and more so towards your background in education and kind of your advice to upcoming new, soon to be new officers. Um, So. Just a little bit about your background. So what made you join? want to join the Air Force? Yeah, so my uh, family was not in the military, or my parents weren't. Uh, my grandparents served a little bit uh, in the reserves. Uh, but I grew up outside of Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama and uh, went to high school, and a lot of Air Force officers' uh, kids were in my class, and I kind of started to learn about the Air Force. Saw all the planes flying. I've always had a passion for aviation, always loved planes. So uh, really it came down to that, those two things combined. And then I just, I always wanted to serve in some capacity. I tried to join the Coast Guard, got rejected, uh, tried to join the Navy. My dad w- didn't take me to the appointment. Um, I tried to join the Army after I got my associates in college and do the warrant officer program. I got talked off the ledge uh, by a lieutenant colonel in the army saying, you want to go Air Force, trust me, go back to school, finish your degree, join ROTC. So that's what I did. So I joined ROTC, had no idea what it was before because never heard of it. And I just saw a cadet walking across the quad in uniform. And I was like, hey, what, what's up with that? And he was like, I'm an ROTC. And he's like, come check it out. So I did and ended up staying. And now I'm here. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Graduated in 2010, mm-hmm. um, so you're about 13 years in uh, your officer career. So obviously you've had a lot of experience so far. Is there anything that you would go back and change um, about your career so far? So I would want to say yes, but I'm happy with where I ended up. So I think the truthful answer is no. Um, I was pretty sad when I got my CISO slot because I wanted to be a pilot growing up. But if that's what I really wanted, I should have come, come here so uh, to get that because ROTC, it's a lot harder to get a pilot slot. So, um, you know, I was a little bit upset, but turned that attitude around, went to CISO training, had a great time, got to 
fly strike eagles for four years and then cross over fly mq9s i feel like that's a like one of the best scenarios that could have happened to me because i got to fly in a fighter and then fly uh, the mq9 and experience that lifestyle and like the opportunities that have come my way are just have just been incredible like being the aoc at usafa never thought that would happen as a lieutenant never thought i would be competitive for that but some reason it worked out so i guess really i wouldn't change anything uh, the only advice i would give to myself as a lieutenant is to try a little bit harder i was always kind of the do the men to get by and i kind of carried that through my strike eagle days and then when i uh, crossed over to mq9s i was like i'm going to give it my best effort here and so that's what i did starting at urt gave it my best effort uh showed up to my squadron uh ready to go told my commander i was like i want to go to weapon school i know i'm late and he said well you're kind of late but there's a chance and i said sounds good let's do it and i just went to the grind and went through the upgrades as fast as i could and made it there and then that opened up doors for getting here so um i just wish i would have gave a little bit more effort earlier on so that i could potentially open up more doors in the future but at the end of the day this is where i wanted to be right now so it worked out some for some reason so <laughs> must have done something right i guess yes sir yeah so um talking a little bit about um usafa a lot of cadets here obviously want to be pilots um currently 35 to 40 percent of the class uh, roughly um becomes pilots and more want to become pilots that don't get it but um a lot of people who are oh, pilot number one i want to go pilot um are a little hesitant to put, say, RPA down as number two, yeah. um, or just kind of hesitant in general to put RPA down, if, even if they didn't want to go um, the manned pilot route. So what's your advice to them on the benefits, um, the pros and cons of putting RPA number two, and what you see um, if they should or shouldn't? Yeah, this one, it kind of blows my mind. It's like, if you want to be a pilot that bad, you're obviously passionate about aviation. So why not put RPA or CISO or even ABM up there because you're still in an aircraft or controlling an aircraft. Um, so make no mistake, like if you go RPAs, you are a pilot in command of an aircraft in the U.S. Air Force inventory. Like plain and simple, like that's what you want. That's what you're passionate about. So I don't understand the hesitation for a lot of people. Um, yeah, it's different from man flying, but at the end of the day, you're still having major impacts on national security and in the aviation related career field. Um, other benefits to it is you still get to wear a flight suit. You still get flight pay. Uh, there's currently an aviation bonus. Uh, it's, last year it was 30000 a year uh, if you sign on past your commitment. Your commitment's only six years versus 10 years. You finish that training a lot earlier than if you were waiting for a year and a half to go to UPT, and now you're 10 years on top of that. You're looking at 12-year commitment not, instead of a seven-year commitment. Uh, so you're just opening up a lot more doors for you earlier in your career. Um, and honestly, I think the unknown of what the future of RPAs looks like is enough incentive for me if you're passionate about aviation to go ahead and put that down on your list. Um, and then at the end of the day, if you don't like it when you get there, you can always apply for UPT on active duty. Yeah, well, sir, I think you have uh, sold me to put <laughs> RPA as number two. Um, yeah. I will say that that was a good take. Um, so kind of wrapping up, um, a little bit of a tradition here on the podcast to uh you know what's what's the best aircraft in the air force inventory and why um i will say 
we had someone flip on their aircraft last episode. So and you've got two aircraft to choose from. So. Yeah, you do have two. I guess that is fair. He has two that could, uh, you know, be chosen, and he doesn't get shot by his, uh, you know, his wingman. <laughs> so, uh, what, what's your take on the matter? Yeah, it's a tough one. There's a lot of great aircraft in the inventory, right? So a lot of them are highly specialized. So you got the A10. They're the masters of cast. You got F22. They're dominant in air to air. And then you got MQ9, it's kind of all around platform. But I'd, I'd probably have to say that if I had to pick one, I'm gonna go with my first love, the Strike Eagle. Uh, <laughs> uh, basically, it's capable of holding its own in air to air fight. Um, it's able to drive e deep into enemy territory and take out a target. And then it's got enough fuel to stick around for a full up fight, unlike the Viper. Shout out to Voodoo and 16. Huh. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, I think the Strike Eagle takes takes the cake. It's just the best all around fighter out there. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna follow up question. Yeah. Um, why not the F-22 compared to the F-15? Um, if we're just just I guess with um, some of the logic that was presented, uh, you I guess I'm just curious why. Obviously, F-22 is a little bit more air to air, but mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, so I have a lot of respect for the F-22. When I was uh, deployed, we did some training flights with them, did some BFM, and we started offensive, and within 30 seconds we were defensive. There was guns, tracks, kill on us, and I was just like, what I was seeing, I was like, how is that even physically possible, what it was doing? So it's an awesome aircraft, don't get me wrong, but I think the all-around aspect goes to the, the Strike Eagle. Well, there you have it. But maybe the, the, the EX. Uh, we'll take the cake when it comes out. Yeah, Major Morris and Colonel Dietz uh, fighting for the strike. You go on the podcast. <laughs> uh, any uh, closing remarks, sir? No, thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, thanks for uh, coming on and talking about the MQ-9, first drone pilot on the podcast. Really uh, insightful um, today. All right, guys, that was it for episode eight of the Flyover podcast. Um, thank you to Major Morris for coming on the podcast. As a reminder, all these episodes are available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts with clips on our Instagram and YouTube channels. And uh, with that, thanks for watching, and we'll catch you guys in the next one.